Hello and welcome to the podcast series Raw Talents with me Fiona Abrahams where I'm deep diving behind the scenes into the careers, aspirations and inspiration of the many skilled and talented individuals who enable the fashion and creative industries to feed our passion for clothing and product. Throughout this podcast series I will be reaching out to the global community, exploring the industry through their eyes, asking people to share insights about the work they do, how they got started, their most compelling experiences, the trials and tribulations they have faced and overcome, who they have met along the way, the lasting friendships formed, the part culture plays in the work they do, and their thoughts on their futures and the future of the industry as we navigate the coronavirus pandemic. Welcome to Series 3, Episode 7 of Raw Talent, where we are back in London exploring the world of brand consultancy with Erin Mullaney, whose experience has been honed in luxury fashion, working at Selfridges, Brown's Fashion, Avenue 32 and Tom Ford, before stepping out as a luxury fashion consultant guiding brands on PR, marketing and creative direction, buying and merchandising, product development, range planning, global pricing, digital strategy and distribution channels. Welcome Erin, how are you today? I'm really good. Thanks, Fiona. Thanks for having me. My absolute pleasure. The sun is shining for us, which is nice. (laughs) Hopefully. Every day will be better than yesterday. (laughs) It's true. This is true. So we first met in 2015, just as you were leaving as co-founder of Avenue 32, which which we will come back to. You built your experience at Harrods, Selfridges and Browns. What What are the highlights from this time? Oh gosh, it's been so much fun to think about them. Actually, um, I um, I realised it's it's almost twenty years ago that I started wow. my career as a buyer. Um, well, it was over twenty years ago. I started in two thousand when I worked at Harrods, um, and I would say the highlight there was working with Mr. Al Fayed and his daughters. Um, and actually, probably the funniest one of the funniest stories from that whole time is um, how I got hired which was I was basically interviewing with Avril Oates at the time, who was the buying director. And I was in her office um, and we were having a really great chat for about an hour. And she sort of at the end of our interview made it sound like there wasn't really a position available, but she would get back to me and let me know whatever. So it sort of sounded like a no. And then suddenly there was a knock on the door and Mr. Alfayad comes in <laughs> and he starts grilling me and questioning me. He clearly seen me on one of his CCTV cameras um, that he had many of. Yeah. And um, basically offered me a job on the spot in front oh, of Avril. Who was very surprised. <laughs> what was Avril's so, reaction? She was like, oh, sir, we don't really have any roles right now. Um, <laughs> but he said, well, um, you're going to come and work for my daughter. So I went and worked with Jasmine Afayed, um, who was doing, um, Jasmine DeMilo was her company at the time. That's right. And um, and it was really great because at that point, um, I got to meet Suzanne Tidefreder, who was consulting on her her project, um, who became one of my sort of fashion mentors um you know in the early stages of my career um and obviously got to work with Avril who then went to Harvey Nichols after that um so yeah it was a really uh, great start but a very bizarre one <laughs> yeah it's a great story 
Really um, and then after Herod's, I was at Herod's for about a year um, and I worked with Lena Basma there, who was very um, kind to take me with her when she went to Selfridges a year later. Um, and so she was a buying manager at Selfridges and um, hired me to be the designer buyer for the second floor for designer and super brands. And we together as a team got to relaunch and redesign the entire second floor. So that was a really exciting project. Um, and working with Ann Pitcher and um, the team there was so dynamic. And I just, I had such a great experience at Selfridges. Um, I can still say it's my favorite department store in the world, probably, um, just because of the energy and they're constantly evolving and constantly reinvesting in, in the brand experience. Um, and it's just such a fun place to shop. So Absolutely. That was a, that I could not agree with you more. I think they, they just created something magical and unique, didn't they? And no doubt yeah, they'll do again as soon as they can react. And they continue, continue to do. It's such a pleasure. You know, I went to their re- recent um, Christmas pop-up, which is a market outside, which was quite a clever thing to do in the middle of COVID. Yeah. Um, and they always, yeah, they're always, they're always ahead of the game on, you know, sustainability. And Alana Weston's really big on that and obviously has made a big push on that for the windows recently. Um, they've got, they're just an amazing, amazing company. Um, and it really did feel, even though it was a huge company, like a family business, um, I suppose that's where I've been really lucky in my career, um, moving from Selfridges to Harrods as well, um, is I've always worked for families, so retail families, yeah. um, you know, that have have started the company from scratch and put their own money into it and really um, have taught me almost how to run a business as though it was my own. Yes. Um, so that served me really well in my career, I think, um, just seeing the passion and t- determination and drive that these people have had to to build these businesses um so yeah so I think Selfridges was exciting because it was my first proper buying job really even Harrods was more of a combination of merchandising and buying um and I got to do all the fashion shows which is obviously always a highlight so um travel um you know it was it was an exciting time to be a buyer and I think you know having looked back on it and, and looking at it versus being a buyer today 20 years later and how different that experience is I just feel very lucky that I was able to do what I did back then (laughs) when it was still um exciting and fun and and you were traveling the world and doing all these shows and um so then when I went to Browns I was the buying director there for about four years um and gosh I mean I could go on for an hour about the highlights at Browns but essentially number one was working with Mrs B so I was um probably the last buyer to ever work directly with her right. um, before she retired. Um, and they sold the company obviously to Farfetch right after I left. Yeah. Um, so that was, for me, that was the highlight for sure of my whole career, probably. Oh, um, she's she just was very, very highly regarded. She is. Yeah. And um, she, she taught me, I always say to people, she taught me to be kind and polite and always get back to people um, respond to every single email and always make time to go see new brands and new designers because you never know who's going to be the next big thing. Such so that was quite advice. Important. Really good advice. A great really lesson for me. Um, and yeah, it was just, I mean, God, I got to do so many exciting things there. I was there for the 40th anniversary. Um, we discovered and launched, you know, countless designers like from Erdem to Roxanda, Nicholas Kirkwood, Mary Katranzu, Medium Kirchhoff. I mean, I could go on and on. Like the list is amazing um, of who we discovered and supported in my time there. Um, and then I got to go to see Alexander McQueen's last show while I was there with oh. Mrs. B. So um, I'll never, ever forget that. It's such a special memory for me. I um, can imagine. So yeah. yeah, so yeah. many wonderful things. 
Wow, such such an insight and such incredible advice as well. So I can see why that would have stood you in good stead. Sometimes the fashion industry has an in, their reputation for being very ruthless. And we do, yeah. I, I, I think we've all seen those elements, but it's so lovely to hear that, you know, there's there are good people teaching great things, setting the right examples. Um, which you know, I, had such, yeah. I was so lucky to have um, worked with so many good mentors, essentially, um, at the beginning yeah. of my career. Hopefully being able to pass that down now that I'm a consultant and, you know, yeah. I'm a mentor people as well. So, I mean, obviously there's, there's a huge, there's a huge amount of scary, you know, stories that go along with these nice stories, but um, <laughs> I can imagine but for the most part, I had a really positive experience in my early oh, career. Amazing. And how did all the early experience pave the way for the creation of Avenue 32? How did that come about? Um, gosh, you know, that it's, it's really interesting. I, um, again, it was timing, I think, because I realized when I was at Brown's that we weren't focusing enough on our online business. Um, it was very much still about the retail experience. Yeah. Um, so I was seeing that that certain companies were kind of like matches, you know, moving ahead with their online. And the bigger stores, like the department stores specifically, were, were just stagnant and they weren't doing anything. So for me, um, I didn't know what to do next after Browns because I felt like I kind of achieved what I'd always wanted to achieve in my career was being buying director of Browns. Um, so it was quite a hard point in my a turning point in my career. Like, where do I go next? Um, and I think um, the timing was amazing. Uh, Roberta Bentler, who is my business partner at Avenue, um, came to me with an idea. And I'll never forget it. We had lunch um, at the Connaught Hotel. And I thought I'd never met her before. She was totally a stranger at the time. So oh, we had funny. friends. Yeah. I think she just, you know, had seen, followed my career at Browns or whatever and liked my sort of aesthetic and my style. And she approached me with this amazing business idea, um, which with the original idea is very different to what we ended up launching a year later. Um, oh, so the original idea was um, this incredibly ambitious idea of a three-dimensional shopping street that would be similar to like a Bond Street or Avenue Montaigne in Paris. Um, and it would be almost like an interactive video game um, in 3D. So <laughs> you basically walk along this beautiful avenue um, and you'd have all the big designer shops and they'd all have shop fronts um, that were curated on a weekly basis and they changed all the time. Um, and you could sort of play it like a video game. You could go in and out of shops, you know, you could see different products and windows changing and it was it was really dynamic. Um, but we were just too early. We were so ahead of the game um, and we tried it and we tested it. And even the technology at the time was a bit clunky and it was, it was not a great customer experience. So we kind of had to dumb it down a little bit, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, and we still kept the sort of, you know, the basics. Um, so of the Avenue concept and having the designers, you know, on a, like a shopping street. Um, when we launched, I remember we launched with about 30 or 40 brands um, and we had Katie Hillier and Giles Deacon and a couple of really lovely designers that um, designed, hand draw, drew and designed beautiful windows for the site when it launched. Um, wow. So we did have that element, but it was 2D. Um, and we kind of ended up, because Netaporte was the main competitor at the time it was and everybody was just so used to shopping on net so yeah. we had to sort of um modify everything to make it as easy to shop as possible yes um, so yeah so she came to me with this I love the idea I thought wow this is something exciting and I really want to get into online world and e-commerce um so it was a perfect opportunity and we just we hit it off really really quickly 
Um, we worked from her house for the first year. Yeah. Us and, and a couple other people, and we built it all up and, and launched it a year later in 2011. Um, and, you know, I can't believe it was 10 years ago. Um, no, not gonna lie. It was so, again, ahead of the time. And now you see them popping up left, right, and center, you know, all these marketplaces. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, I, I think that the idea and the concept was um, ahead of its time. And, you know, I, I, I really miss it, actually. I think there's still a little space or a niche of, you know, that's void that could, that an Avenue 32 could fill. Yeah, definitely. And I think the original concept probably is something that could uh, come back around just with yeah. the evolution. It might be on there. <laughs> yeah, just if you think about the evolution that's taken place in gaming over the last um decade it's huge so the tech is definitely heading in that direction um well, you've got that new website called dressed um mm. which is doing that kind of concept of gaming and interacting with the customer and you know you can win points when you shop and things like that yeah exactly um, yeah. and then you've got so many established games where designers are being asked to create outfits for the avatars so yep. there's no, that side of it so it's it's kind of getting there isn't it it is. Yeah. I'm getting there. Ten years later. Yeah. <laughs> <Fashion> <laughs> <is finally laughs> <catching> up. <laughs> I know. It's it's so interesting. What are your standout moments from your early experience? Oh gosh, I think I've mentioned quite a few of them already. I mean, um, I mean, just little things that for me were important at the time. You know, I remember working with Roland Murray, for example. Um, yeah. He had just rebranded himself because he lost his his name you know some yeah his, ways and he lost the name Roland Murray so he came back again as the designer formerly known as Roland Murray basically um and uh, we launched his first ever retail shop at Selfridges together and he I remember just such a lovely man and he, he cried when we, when we opened the shop because he was just so happy to be back and Aww. have um for his clothes um and we couldn't fit his brand name above the above the shop because it was so long <laughs> Oh, how funny. <laughs> it was RM. Um, so that was quite fun. Um, you know, I mean, God, I've done so many cool things. I, I can't even, I'm so lucky just thinking back on it. I could write a book on it, to be honest. You can. All those fun experiences. Absolutely. Oh, it's amazing. I mean, you've, you've worked with some absolute icons of the industry. And then after Avenue 32, you went to Tom Ford as worldwide um, director of merchandising. Tell us a bit about your merchandising expertise and sort of the key factors that have played into your analysis and methodology. Well, speaking of working with icons, I mean, Mr. Yeah. Ford, probably the biggest one of all. Absolutely. <laughs> so for me, that was, you know, another career highlight. Um, and yeah. he is he is larger than life and he is exactly what you expect him to be. Um, you know, so fabulous turning up to meetings in his sunglasses with his, you know, shirt unbuttoned to here and drinking coffee out of big sort of massive glasses, you know, and, uh, he's just brilliant. Oh, um, I'm very, very hands-on, which I wasn't expecting. I, um, I've had that so many times. I know lots of people that yeah. worked for him and with him and everyone says that. He's extremely passionate still about what he does. And obviously it comes through because he's so particular yeah about how everything is executed which I love yes um but I mean apart from being you know one of the best designers in the world he's also an extremely talented marketing and branding person okay um so I learned a lot about that when I was there um but from a merchandising point of view it was really interesting for me because I'd gone from being a buyer for 15 years in a multi-brand oh. environment 
um, working with brands like Tom Ford, but never actually being in-house at a brand like that. Yeah. So it was a big culture shift for me. Um, and I probably struggled with it a little bit because I was used to being on the other side and being the pampered, spoiled buyer. <laughs> and now I was in-house having to spoil the buyers. Um, so it was a very interesting transition for me. Um, obviously, you know, I, I loved the experience, but um, I was there for less than a year because I realized from a merchandising point of view, it was a tricky job because um, as a merchandiser, you know, you are there to um, really take, I think, what is the core product and the core business and develop and grow that. And mm-hmm. then everything else in the designer world is like icing on the cake, you know, it, whether it's the seasonal fashion show, um, you know, the collaborations that they do, et cetera, like all the wonderful bits they get the press. Um, but, but down to the core product is really what the merchandiser is responsible for. Mm-hmm. Um, and the problem was when I was at Tom Ford was the women's wear business was so young and it was still establishing itself. Um, we didn't have a lot of core products. So it was uh, difficult to merchandise if I'm honest, um, and Tom, you know, being so creative and dynamic, changed the collection almost 100% from season to season. So it is tricky to plan and, you know, predict what will be um, the bestseller for next season when it of changes. because you're starting, you're starting fresh every time. Absolutely, because you're so far ahead of the game. Yeah. Um, so I think in a very highly luxury, highly creative brand like that, the merchandising role is, is trickier. Mm. Um, then you look at someone, you know, I was thinking about who does it really well and you can look at someone like a Gucci, um, mm. for someone like a Saint Laurent and they're, for me, they're night and day, the way that they merchandise their collections. Um, and Gucci is probably more a bit like Tom Ford where everything is new all the time. And, you know, there's, there's so many options. And it's such a big collection. Um, and you know, it comes, it goes and that's it. Never get, no, they never repeat anything. Yeah. Whereas Saint Laurent is the opposite you know you can always you always know you're going to find like the great black boot or the great cape coat or a beautiful knit or you know there's always there's there's these categories that work really well for them and they know it yeah so that is their core business and then you know their merchandising team is responsible for that and then the the sort of fashion shows are the icing on the cake every season so that's a much more I guess an easier example of how merchandising is done well um, I think I understand that and you set up your own consultancy straight after Tom Ford. What inspired you to go it alone and to do this, take this leap? I think I think it was realizing that um, I could do what I could. I could take my experience and my network and my skills that I had learned in the last twenty years and actually apply them to small to medium sized businesses that really couldn't afford me probably full time, but also really needed my help. And you know, I've always always championed. championed young emerging brands. That's always been my thing, even when I was a buyer. Um, you know, I love discovering talent. I love um, nurturing it. I love working with creatives. I love product. Um, so for me, it seemed like a natural thing to to try and go out on my own and use my network to, to help brands that I'd worked with in the past. Um, and uh, I was very lucky to have um, a big brand, Hunter, as my first client. Um, so, so that was a great experience. So kind of I did... I went from being worldwide director of market merchandising for Tom Ford to director of merchandising for Hunter, which, I mean, you couldn't have two completely different brands if you tried. Absolutely. (laughs) And what did you, what did Hunter hire you to do? So I was looking over, um, I was head of merchandising for women's, men's and kids. 
and um, all categories. So at the beginning, when I was there, they had a new CEO um, and creative director was Alistair Wills, who was there for many, many years and did That's an right. amazing job. Yeah. He recently left. Um, so that was great working with him. Um, and we set out when I was there, I think footwear was footwear and specifically rubber footwear, obviously was something like 70% of their total sales when I joined Mm. Um, and the whole um, strategy and goal um, from the CEO, Vincent, was around creating a multi-category, multi-channel lifestyle brand. So that was his directive. So what we managed to achieve in the two years that I was there was diversifying the brand portfolio, the product portfolio, and increasing the non-footwear sales to almost 50% of the total business. So it was a, it was a big shift um, you know, from a customer point of view, um, from a brand and marketing point of view, from a product development point of view, we learned a lot, um, you know, and working with rubber and things like that, it's the, the critical path in the supply chain is so much longer than working on like a ready to wear brand. Yeah. Um, okay. so I learned a lot. We were planning like 12 to 18 months in advance product. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Very interesting experience. As a consultant, yeah. as a brand consultant, where does your specialist knowledge lie? So um, it's funny, whenever people ask me about merchandising, um, it's such an overused term, I feel, in our industry. You probably know yeah, this as a recruiter as well. Uh, when someone goes, I think I need a merchandiser, you're like, what kind of merchandiser? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so there's like, I, I was researching it the other day, there's five or six different types of merchandisers. Yeah. And I also um, think, I also think the, the, the industry shifted so much now. Um, the way that consumer, to meet consumer expectations, it's very much about news and responding to what the consumer wants. And it's not about being dictated to by a brand. So it's, yeah. it's almost the power is totally really in the lap of the consumers, don't you think? Absolutely. You're, you're yeah. absolutely right. It used to be very much the brand creates products, the brand... Yeah. Pushes product into the market, into their retail stores. They merchandise it visually, yeah. you know, and then it goes on sale, and then it's got you know, it's it, that whole model is just dead. I feel totally. Um, the consumer now tells the brand what it wants. The brand goes away and makes it. The consumers then get it. They model it, and then yeah. people buy it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're in, the, the consumer is in charge, and they're endorsing the products now, not the brands. Yeah. Um, so you'd have. I've had to. Sh- you know, you have to shift your entire way of thinking when you're when you're creating and producing a product now. Um, so it used to be that there was, you know, a visual merchandiser, and there's a retail store merchandiser, there's a buying and planning merchandiser, there's which is more like what I was doing as a buyer and more financial and, you know, analytical, I suppose. Um, there's always like, you know, digital now and online and omni-channel people. Mm. Um, and then there's what, there's what I specialize in, which is product merchandising. Mm. um so that and that is everything around the product life cycle yeah so starting from the very beginning of the critical path in in the inception of an idea um or the theme of a range or whatever it's going to be for spring summer or autumn winter or whatever your drop is that you're doing Mm. and looking at you know the the sort of key milestones along that critical path like what are the what are the delivery that the sort of dates that we have to hit um with you know everything from (laughs) creating um I don't know, CADs, um, mm. you know, approving prints, you know, what's the pricing structure going to be? What are, what's our markup? What's our, you know, every, everything that has to do with the critical path. Um, yeah. And it's a big job. Um, Huge. Usually yeah. carried out by a team. 
yeah exactly all playing their part along that critical path it's it's true and and you do need in a big big brands you know you need a, a good size merchandising team to be successful nowadays i think um and the other thing is that's great about merchandising is it is the sort of linchpin that keeps the whole brand running so you know you're responsible for everything to do with product so you know you're communicating with you're working with all the sort of marketing people branding people ceo pr um, but you're also working with production, product development, um, you know, all the sourcing and supply supply chain people. Um, so you're kind of, you're, you're in the middle of the business, working with mm. every single part of the business to make this product happen and get it to market. Yeah, certainly for the bigger brands, definitely. I think yeah. smaller brands, that role gets fulfilled by the founder or uh, yeah. uh, someone else that's um, in a managerial position within the business. But yeah very interesting isn't it um you've consulted with brands including Demelier London um we spoke about Hunter you've also done Jigsaw Wise um Lisu London share some of the highlights and successes from your time as a consultant um well the highlights I think again is is being able to work with um not with, with big and small brands for me that's been really why I love consulting so I can dip yeah. in and out and I can I can also share experiences across all my clients that yeah. really help them um so and also just being being flexible having the flexible working hours obviously um because I'm a mom so that was really important yeah. to me um and working with nice people just I always yeah. that's my mantra and I know you have the same mantra <laughs> it's like yeah, just want to work with nice people <laughs> that that get it and you know and have a bit of fun and just really enjoy what I'm doing um I think you know I did my days of working for big corporations and I'm just I think maybe it's my age or I don't know this point in my career I just don't really want to go back to doing that and working full-time in an office no so it comes to mind doesn't it and actually just being able to be your own boss um you could be equally dedicated but it's on your terms not a company's terms it makes a big difference you absolutely use the projects and yeah it's so much nicer um I completely completely resonate with that and I think we all want to work with nice people we want to work with like-minded people that we share a a vision and a passion with and we can really go into what they're doing so yeah it's the most important thing otherwise why are we doing it what's the point and I think this year has really underlined that for all of us is like life's too short you know we don't know what's around the corner and I just don't have time for working with people that, you know, are, are just a nightmare or, you know, going to take suck me, suck me dry and not give me anything back. You know, it's just yeah. not, I've done that. I've been there. I don't want to do it anymore. So absolutely. I think I was saying to um, uh, somebody a couple of days ago, a potential new client, you know, um, you have to trust in people and in processes. If you're going to work with me, you have to 100% trust me because yeah. I'm delivering results for you. You're going to end up with, you know, someone who's going to make a huge difference to your business if um, if you want my expertise and my industry knowledge. But if you don't, if you start out setting the intention of being untrusting and yeah. playing into all your own fears, then your business is going to suffer and you won't get the results you want. So I think it is yeah. much about having that, you know, shift in mindset sometimes with people and for them to think, right, I've got to invest in this in order to get to here. Sometimes you have to do that as a, business, as a brand owner. You know, it's never always going to be about a small team or just you. You've got gaps in your business. You've got to fill them. 
sensible yeah. and sometimes people need help to do that so and that's okay it's an investment yeah they end up never looking back because you get yeah. that person in happy days I'm sure you've seen that many times with the oh god I work with yeah, yeah I mean some of the best advice I've ever heard is is if you start your own business you know know, know what you're good at and know what you're, what you're not good at and hire in the best possible people you can for your money yeah. um to do the things that you have gaps in that you're not that you're not you know either not keen on or you don't know how to do um and I think that's what a good consultant should be doing is filling those gaps and going above and beyond really the expectations of the client to deliver on that because yeah it is hard as you know there's a lot of um a lot of consultants out there and it's really yes. hard to you know convince no, people to trust that. exactly no, to trust. Yeah. I know absolutely I think that's something I'm always very conscientious of sometimes people give themselves the label of consultant and they're not the real deal um, yeah I know who they all are in the fashion industry <laughs> Our industry is very small and word gets out quickly, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you might think that people don't know, but they do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, why I, that's why those words from Mrs. B always haunt me. Always be nice and always be kind. Yes. <laughs> you never know who you're going to end up, you know, working with. Yeah, and I also think don't take on things you can't really do. Be real yeah, with yourself about what your capabilities are and don't try and make out that you can do things you can't. Absolutely, you end up doing damage, and I've seen that happen um, from the sidelines uh, a few times. And you know, it breaks my heart that people would be that dishonest with themselves and then try and market that. And it's like, no, (laughs) no, it's true. And I think that's why when you're when you're a consultant, I my I pride myself on my network and working with people that do fill the gaps that I that I don't you know able to. So if I'm, you know, if I need someone who's an e-commerce specialist or a digital marketing specialist or a PR specialist, I like to have two or three people that I trust that can, yes. you know, do those things for my clients. Yeah. And I'm the first person to say, this is not my area, but I know someone amazing who can do that for you. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, it's important to so admit important. that. <laughs> it's so important. Absolutely. And in our extended lockdown reality that we're now living in, what tactics oh. have you tried and tested to help brands ride the waves? Um, well, this, I've learned so much in this last year, actually, um, myself, working with a couple of my clients um, to get through COVID and get through this very bizarre pattern of sales that we've been having. Yeah. Um, I've got lots of ideas on this topic. So just tell me if you get bored and cut me off. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, so obviously, you know, with all the retail stores shutting down, I, mean, I won't state too much. The obvious, everyone's moved to online. And I, I read something the other day that said, you know, online fashion grew something like over, like in the in the three first three months of lockdown, it, it grew almost 10 years or something. It advanced mm. almost 10 years. Um that quicker than it would have if we had mm-hmm. not been in lockdown. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously there was some key players that came out on the top of that, you know, the Amazons and Walmarts and all the kind of big, big players that were, were that had this sort of um, logistics and delivery service already going really well. Um, yeah. But I think there was also a lot of smaller brands that were winners in the last year. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of, one of both of my clients, um, Lizu specifically is a great example of that. I mean, they are, a brand who, you know, when a lot of people after the first three months, they were all scared and, you know, some people wanted to close, close their businesses and they stopped making new, new stock and they stopped their PR and marketing they stopped their digital marketing. And we decided we had, we all agreed, like what better time to double down on digital marketing and PR and actually Mom. when everybody, 
disappears, like there's going to be this empty space where we can, as a small brand, get recognized and shout louder. Um, and it worked. Um, so yeah, we, we saw like our sales uplift almost 400% in this last year, um, and smashed our sales targets, you know, for the year. I mean, it was, it was really amazing to watch. Um, and there's a few things, you know, not just Lizzy, but a lot of other brands I can, I've been watching a lot of other sort of direct to consumer brands and what they're doing. Um, I would say that there's a couple of really important things. The first and foremost is, is the customer. You've got to put the customer first. Customer acquisition and retention is so important. Customer service is so important right now. You know, making sure that you put the customer at everything you do. Um, you know, because a lot of brands, I think, have a great product and a great story, but they're just not that good at customer service. And Absolutely. it means you might get one, one person shopping, but they won't come back. You know, they won't tell their friends and they won't rave about you. No. So that's like number one for me is customer. Um, obviously yeah. product as well, having yeah. a great product. Um, having one thing that works really well, I think, for directing direct to consumer, maybe not as much for a wholesale model, but um, is having regular product drops that yeah. are much smaller and more often. Yeah. So, yeah, frequent drops that are very small quantities, like limited quantity. And then you can just test the product in that way and respond quicker to what works. And, you know, reorder or pre-order in season, um, pre-orders are massively up. Like every brand I've talked to just raving about their pre-orders and how well they're doing because people are um, not as, I guess they're more patient. They're sat at home. They're not like going anywhere. They don't have parties and, you know, dinners and weddings and all these things. So they're just happy to wait for things. They are. Absolutely. Um, It's a nice surprise when something rocks up out of the blue. Oh, definitely. And when you feel like, that 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 brand has actually made it for you as well like um it's special to get it yeah it's it's nice so that that works really well um obviously sustainability is 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 as as important as ever um especially in this time i think people are being so aware of how things are made where they're made how much they cost you know how are you packaging it how are you delivering it like every single part of your supply chain has to be transparent and sustainable um so that's really important using your off cuts you know that would be lying around the floor in your in your factory to make a whole capsule collection or make accessories or make whatever it is you know but Mm -hmm. don't waste things um I think that's kind of a, a new trend that I've been seeing a lot um for smaller brands um and then I would say uh building community like creating and building a community around your brand story is really important um you know we did that through IGTV yeah um, with Lee and it's I mean our, our Instagram has gone up to 25,000 people now it's just uh, from 4,000 a year ago so mainly due to um the founder Rini who's just a wonderful very personable likable lady who who does a weekly um video uh with various different people sometimes fashion sometimes non-fashion um but just people she respects and admires and, and finds interesting um, and I think that, you know, people now know that, that we do it every week on a Thursday at one and they tune in and it's sort of brought the brand to life a bit, I think. That's amazing. I mean, how, and how so, fantastic yeah. to be, to have got it up to sort of 25k followers. That's, that's incredible. And just having amazing. that sort of regular weekly slot, I imagine is also really good because people know exactly what time, when to go and, when to go and listen in. Yeah, I think, and what, why is another one of my um, clients has has done the same. She's, Marielle's very clever at that. Um, and she's built a hugely loyal following 
on the back of her regular IGTV updates. Um, I think people just feel like they know you, like it becomes much more personal. Yeah. Um, they feel a connection to you. They feel like they can DM you with a question. And a lot of customers do that after the videos. Like, oh, I love that shirt. What, you know, what? where do I get it? Like, you know, we see our sales just like right after that thing, whatever was on there that we featured sells immediately after. Amazing. And then we see our signups go up. We see our followers go up. So it, it, is, it has a direct impact immediately when we do these videos. Yeah, um, and I think that's really interesting because where people haven't got that opportunity to go out to stores or see the brand anywhere, they can suddenly, they've got it at their fingertips and they can actually talk to the owner. Exactly. That's fairly recent, I would say. Yeah. Um, to have that kind of access to a designer. Yeah. I mean, God, when I was first buying, they were like celebrities. You didn't talk to them. Mm. You, know? <laughs> the, 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 you know, the general public wouldn't even have known who they were because they were just no, yeah. away in the background and... It's very much about being at the forefront now, isn't it? It is. And it's it's much harder when I have clients that don't want to be the face of their own brand and they Ooh. just want it to be, you know, a brand. And that I find it's harder to, to market and it's harder to connect with their customer and build that community when it's, when it's sort of a faceless, nameless brand. Absolutely. Because so. that generic fashion has gone. We've, we've moved away from that. So yes. if, you're gonna, if you're going to put a brand out there, it needs to have the authenticity of the uh, personality and the intention behind it. If it's just about making money, it's probably not going to last. Exactly. I mean, that word that you used, authentic, is the word that keeps coming up for me. It's It's got to be real. People have to believe your story. They have to want to buy into your story and your product. Mm. Um, and it's not just about having a nice sweater. There's like 20 million people that do nice sweaters, mm. you know, or nice dresses. It's about, you know, the whole story, like who, what charities do you work with? How are mm. what, what's your sustainability initiatives? Where are you produced? Like it's all of these things now that, that these young millennials look at. Um, and they're the ones that have the spending power. So mm. Absolutely. And also influencing the, their parents and, their, and the older generations who then are also yeah, looking for the same things. So it's, it's, it's so interesting. It's contagious. Um, can you share one or two insights that um, have helped brands really gain and maintain traction online? So we've, we've spoken extensively about the um, about storytelling. Are there any mm. other elements that you think are really important? Um, I mean, I think I hate saying it because I'm I'm always I've always been like um, not an anti-blogger influencer person, but. I, I think that they, there's some really amazing influencers out there and then there's lots of average ones. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, influencer marketing has changed and shifted as, as well in the last five years so dramatically. So what, what's important now? Where is it at? What's changed? Well, it used to be that it was all about the macro influencer. So it was like, you know, the big names that we all know. Um, they went to the fashion shows and it was, you know, following what they were doing and, you know, the Susie Bubbles and the Camille Chariers and all those kind of big first influencers that first came out. Um, And now what I'm noticing is from a commercial and sales point of view, they, those aren't the people that are making the sales for brands. Those are the people that are raising brand awareness maybe, but it's the micro influencers that are, I don't know, between um, 5,000 followers and let's say 50 or 60,000 followers. Um, and they are the girls that are, you know, real shoppers and their followers shop and trust them. 
So if you can find the right micro-influencer for your brand and do a little collab or a partnership or a promotional offer with them, that can actually, you know, I've had experience of, you know, 20, 30 grand's worth of orders from the right partnership um in like the space of a day or two you know I mean even little little things like Lucy Williams wore a face mask from Lisu and she actually bought it herself we never gave it to her um and hundreds hundreds of orders in the next 24 hours on the back of that you know so these little things um they add up and and it's hard to predict when something like that will happen obviously but if you can plan um the collaborations and the partnerships with the micro influencers as part of your sales and commercial strategy that can actually add quite a lot to your bottom line. Interesting. Very interesting. Do you think that lockdown has changed our shopping habits for good? Oh, do you think so? I do. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know. I miss retail. I really do. Obviously from yeah. someone you know, who's come from a retail background, I really miss going into the shops and I, I do. I, I will really look forward to getting back to that but having said that even before lockdown retail was changing it was um this has just been the nail in the coffin that we needed to completely move it on Mm. um but I think you know if you went into um like a matches for example which is my local kind of west london shop I suppose yeah it was it was basically showroom I mean there was one size of everything yes (laughs) you could never ever get it then and there and take it away with you. It was like, oh, let's go on our iPad and it's in our warehouse and we'll ship it to you tomorrow. And you're like, no, I've come in here to take it away now. <laughs> um, so I think, you know, stores were becoming less product stock heavy and more showroom-like anyway. Yeah. Um, everything was becoming digital. Even when you go into Browns now, it's all on iPad and, you know, it's, it, it is much more, it's different. Um so yeah, I think it will become even more exper- experiential. Is that the word? Yes. Um, so less sense. about selling clothes and more about, you know, I mean, things like Glossier. They had that amazing pop-up um, when they first launched in London, which I went to, which is a bit sort of young and teenage for me, but I went for my my teenage stepdaughter was really into it. So we went and it it was so cool. It was, it was like going to a, not a show, but it was like an experience, you know? You went in, you were greeted, and there was like a smell in the air of their new perfume, and there was all these like roses and balloons, and you could photograph yourself. It was a very interesting experience. Fantastic, because it, I think that's also I think I think that that's you hit the sort of nail on the head there in terms of the fact that perhaps it will also make people um, cherish the things that they do buy more, especially if they have to wait for them to be delivered. Yeah. It suddenly becomes a lot more special, and perhaps that will help move on um the desire for disposability it will get rid of that um mentality of buying things and and disposing of them people will be more inclined to perhaps resell you know use the resale platforms move things on in a different way so because it was something they bought they cherished they had a good experience in store at the beginning so yeah Yeah. i hope so i really i really am very very passionate about the resale market I think it's a yeah. huge I think we're just scratching the surface with it but oh completely. Um, it's, I'm so glad that it that I think in lockdown as well a lot of people have realized that they can monetize their wardrobes for a bit of cash on the side yeah um, so it's it's had a huge uptake in the last year as well because of COVID so yeah let's hope that continues um, absolutely absolutely I was I was having this conversation with the founder of higher street which is a really clever business that's yeah. up up north. And we were talking about exactly this, 
it's uh, it's definitely the future. Um, on, a cons- on, on your consultancy wish list, if you could choose any, you know, one or two brands that you really love to work with, who would oh, you gosh. pick? That is such a hard one. I know. I really struggle with that one. Um, well, there's lots of brands that I admire that I think are doing really beautiful things. I mean, my favorite brand from a personal point of view at the moment is Kate, which is the K- K-H-A-I-T-E. Um, they're, I think, based in New York. Really beautiful, very young. I mean, a couple of years old, but they're already in all the key stores here, Selfridges and Harrods, I think, um, and probably Netaporte and a couple of others. But um, just doing really beautiful um, luxury everyday clothes that are wearable. Um, and I just, that's the kind of, I guess, because of my age, that's my, my, my vibe at the moment is just, <laughs> I'm not a sweatpants, to be honest. <laughs> oh, you know how hard it's been? I hate sweatpants and loungewear. I'd like, I'm not that kind of person anyway. No, I'm not either. Um, so this whole lockdown has just been really hard for me not to get dressed every day to go to work and like, yeah. make and, you know, I really miss that. Actually. Yes, absolutely. It's so nice having, you know, just being able to put a lovely outfit on. Um, yeah. I, th- I think I the only saving grace of all this is it will hopefully be coming out of lockdown in the summer. And there's always such lovely summer clothes to wear. So, yeah, it'd be quite I fun. To summer clothes. Too. I know. Yeah. I mean, there's, yeah, there's lots of brands that I admire. Um, another brand called Pangaya. I don't know if you've heard of them. They're like, um, how do I they are actually loungewear I suppose sweats um t-shirts and sweats but it's all sustainable and they're working on um like um this thing called like flower down for example which is um, a down made of plants that you put into jackets instead of feather down Um, they're just a fully sustainable brand um they're, they're really interesting I think they're really dynamic and creative and kind of um ahead of the game a bit and they're actually um using the technology that they create for their brand and actually outsourcing it to other brands now as well. So fantastic. Really That's, great. Yeah. That's wonderful. That's similar to um, uh, Swedish stockings where they're doing a whole recyclable tights thing. Yeah, it's brilliant. How interesting. What's been your greatest achievement so far? Oh gosh. <laughs> greatest achievement in my career. I mean, my greatest achievement in life is being a mom and having my daughter. Um, because that was something I always wanted to do. And I was a much, uh, much older mom. So I was I'm very lucky to, uh, I'm actually about to have my second child. Um, a couple of weeks. <laughs> no. So yeah, um, being able to do that so late in life, I'm, I'm, I feel very lucky you are um, blooming and you're uh, so so great with pregnancy I have to say you're well thanks you do thank you I'm enjoying I mean it's, it's been very odd being in lockdown and being pregnant because obviously I haven't seen anyone and so a lot of people don't know I'm pregnant <laughs> and probably will end up seeing me with a second child and going when did that happen yeah. <laughs> definitely um but so yeah um apart from that I think oh god career-wise I don't know. I think I was very, very proud of um, Avenue 32 and what we achieved there and, you know, working with Roberta and just starting that from scratch and building it into what it was and what it became. It gave me the confidence to know that I can do that and I, and I could do it again. Um, it was it was it was very um, time consuming and, and draining. It was almost like having a child, but mm. it was such a, a great, enjoyable experience. Um, I have a really fond memories of. Yeah. Very proud of that. Amazing. And as you should be, because it was it really was a forerunner 
for so many things. Um, you definitely, uh, you took the market by storm and you gave such yeah. a wonderful platform to emerging brands. So yeah, yeah. It, was, uh, it was sad to see it disappear, but definitely, um, definitely <laughs> left a legacy. Yeah. <laughs> What's been the biggest challenge in your career, would you say, but a great learning opportunity? Challenge? Um, what has been the biggest challenge? I love a challenge, so I always see challenge as an opportunity. Um, I'm someone who's quite competitive and ambitious, so for me, a challenge is just another thing to figure out and overcome. <laughs> um, but I don't know. What would make... I don't know. Oh. I don't know. I can't really answer. We'll come back to that. We'll come back. <laughs> yeah. But I think there's lots of small challenges. Yeah. That happen. I wouldn't say there's one big one, but there's... No, there's lots of little things that, you know, yeah. for example, you know, the, 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 the sort of situation we find ourselves in, um, navigating online, the online yeah. market and tactics and strategy. So there's lots of little things in there. We've probably covered more. Yeah. Everyday challenges. Yeah. yeah. Everyday so challenges. You're probably right. I would say that this COVID, this last year, has probably yeah. been the most challenging year of any of our lives um, by far. 100%. Yeah. I could not agree with you more. What are your aspirations and goals for 2021? Um, well, once I have the baby, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm really, I mean, I, I, I'm in a really good place right now because I think, like, as we discussed, work-life balance is so important to me right now. Absolutely. Especially with a young family. You yeah, three-year-old and your three-year-old, yeah, yes, three, and you're yeah, yeah. Too, so you're going to have your hands full. I've got to put that first, yeah. Um, yeah. And I and I think you know, like we said, going back to working with nice people, good products, and nice brands um, to really make a difference and make a positive impact for each of those brands. Um, probably taking on less less work and less brands, so that I'm able to to be a mum and be more Great flexible ones. Yeah. yeah just find that balance I mean yeah. actually another challenge going back to that question was for me was coming back to work after having my first baby yeah and I'm sure a lot of women can relate to that because yeah. it I had a lot of anxiety and fear around leaving my child and date in a childcare setting you know for the first time and you know the, the mum guilt and all that stuff was very real um but I'm glad I did it because I did get over that fear and and actually going back to work was the best thing I ever did because it kind of got, I got that part of me back that I feel, you know, more, more confident, um, having, having gone back to work. So I'm glad I did it. And now I know I can do it again more easily. Yeah. And the kids thrive, you know, when they're with, with their, when they're with their little friends and there's other babies. Oh, they love it. Yeah. They, they need it. it. Yeah. They're like, go away, mom. I want to be with friends. Yeah. yeah, I think lockdown has proven that for many of us that kids are not supposed to be home with their parents full time. Absolutely. <laughs> so, so true. And we've actually reached my closing question, which is this. Okay. If you could hire any three people in the world to lend their expertise to your business, who would you choose and why? Oh, that is such a tricky one to end on. Um, oh, gosh. Uh, I mean... Ugh. Funnily enough, so I would I would probably name two celebrities and then one um, or two real people that I know. Yeah, <laughs> um, so celebrity famous person wise, which would never happen, yeah. but um, Elon Musk because I just no, think he's not again. Mental. I'm the first <laughs> person everyone comes out with. That's so funny. Really? Oh no, that's so boring. <laughs> all the podcasts, um, yes, all my podcasts. He's is literally 
he's really everyone's guest list <laughs> how funny I just think it's he's such a mad scientist isn't he he's like he's like the new kind of absolutely know, Bill Gates or someone he's he's so his mind so out there yeah he's a visionary, exactly. he's a true visionary. but also would probably just be like a really interesting fun person to have around <laughs> I'm sure. um, and then I really love um, Angela Ahrens. I've always admired her. And, you know, for me, she was one of the first real product merchandisers that ever existed. Yeah. Um, you know, during her Burberry days and things like that. Yeah. I, I worked with her briefly while I was a buyer and I was always very much um, in awe of her um, and just thought she was an amazing person and would love her expertise and knowledge, would love to sit down and pick her brains. Um, and then my last one is kind of cheesy, but my, my two brothers... <laughs> My two brothers are, they're amazing. Um, one of them, we, we always joke that we're going to start a consulting firm with the three of us. Um, my brother, Sean, is, so I'm the oldest and then Sean and then Kevin. And um, I'm the sort of fashion product girl. Sean is more, um, he studied computer science at Cambridge and he went on to work um, at Google as part of Google X, which is their like inventions arm. Yeah, inventions and are, yeah. He, he moved to San Francisco and he worked directly with the founders of Google on the drone program. Wow. Um, so he's had like the most amazing experience with them and then came back here. Um, he's worked since with Zolando um, as sort of head of big data and, you know, AI and all this stuff. So he's, he's just such an interesting guy and, and really uh, um, ahead of the game digitally. Uh, he's now working with Stripe, which is an online payment and company. Stripe. Yeah, um, helping them to grow and, and grow their business. And from he works in Dublin in Ireland. Um, so yeah, he'd be on my list for sure. And then my little brother, Kevin, is a SEO digital marketing expert. So he's um, just moved to Sweden and got a job with an amazing creative agency there. Um, and yeah, the, I think the three of us together would have like the full package. <laughs> amazing. Sounds fantastic. You've got it all planned out. I know, maybe one day. Yeah, one day. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, that's the only I downside. That. I love and that. And my dad. My dad is another one I, would, I always go to for advice. He's amazing. Oh, that's so nice. And it all it kind of ties back in with the whole family business theme that we started with when we were talking about the Alphiads. Yes. Yeah, I've always gravitated towards that. I love working as part of a family business. Yeah. Yeah. It's my, it's that's my comfort people. though. Yeah. Yeah, they're good people and they're consultative and they empower and they're open to listening. It can be an amazing experience. Definitely. Definitely. Thank you so much. It's been really insightful. Thank you for being Thank on you. today. Thanks for having me. I love it. So it's just so um, nice to have time to be able to reflect on things and yeah. you know talk about your career and, what, and where you've come from and sort of re- reevaluate what's what's coming because. it is such an unpredictable world right now (laughs) no it really is but you know um we've we've it's proven how resilient we all are and you know we will will it's up to us to create the future so yeah let's create something that's wonderful exactly what yeah we almost have a blank slate now but like a clean slate you know, yeah. we've got to reset and, re- and rethink how we want the future to look you're right yeah absolutely it's up to us to create that and to create the re- reality we want to live in and we want to be part of so I think you know what a lovely situation to be in in many respects and we'll get there I think we all have to work yeah. together we need to look at it as an opportunity you're right 
Yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, thank you again. Thank you. Nice to see you. It has been fascinating listening to Erin share with us some of her early career highlights at Harrods, Selfridges and Browns, which was so much fun for her to think about working with Mohammed Al-Fayed and his daughters at Harrods for a year before being taken by her boss to Selfridges to work on Super Browns, which was an incredible experience and a huge company, company that felt more like a family business. She learned how to run a business within a business. It was an exciting time going to all the shows and Erin's first proper buying role. Browns was the next highlight, working with Joan Burstein for four years, who said, always be kind, respond to every email and see every brand, as you never know who is going to be the next big thing. In reaching the pinnacle of her Browns experience, Erin was approached by Avenue 32 co-founder, Roberta Bentler, about a 3D online shopping street concept, a bit like a video game. It was so ahead of its time, the tech just wasn't ready. Erin shares how her experience working with the multi-talented visionary Tom Ford led her to start her own consultancy, realising she could take her 20 years experience and her network to small businesses who could never afford her but would benefit from her help. It has been fascinating to hear how Lisa, for example, has smashed its sales targets by 400% while we've been in lockdown. And to dive into the nuances of driving online engagement and conversion by harnessing the voice behind the brand to build authenticity through storytelling. If you enjoyed this episode, join me next time when I will be speaking with Jack Cameron Gove, Managing Director of Emerging Menswear Brand Basic Rights. And if you are enjoying the series, hit the subscribe button to receive notifications on upcoming episodes where you'll get to hear first-hand insights from across the global fashion and creative industries.